It's been three weeks, three weeks in a row, and I have not yet forgotten to start the recording of this class. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Hey there, everybody. I'm David Bruner, Director of Discipleship at Paley Presbyterian Church. Hey there, friends. I'm so glad you're with us today. I'm back with another episode of our class, Until the End of the World, Heaven, Hell, and the Possibility of Universal Salvation. This week we're on episode number three, which means we're engaging with universalism, the idea held by some Christians that there is no hell or that hell will eventually be found to be empty. It's a thought-provoking notion, and I hope you enjoy hearing about it. I sure enjoyed discussing it. In this episode, we have the same structure that we've had for the last several weeks. We have some scripture that we discuss. There's some music that you'll hear to help you reflect on these themes. And then we wrap up by engaging with our interlocutor for this week, a man named Origen of Alexandria. He lived in what is modern-day Egypt in the uh, 100s and 200s, a brilliant Christian thinker worth learning and studying about. Thanks for joining us. As always, if you want to attend the classes in person and uh, keep up with the reading, you'll find information on our website, paoliprez.org backslash adults. And if you have any questions or you want to dialogue more about the themes of this class, by all means, feel free to reach out, david.bruner at paoliprez.org. Thanks and bless you. Hi, everybody. This is week week three. So we're talking about universalism. We're talking about the idea that um, one day all people will be saved. And it's a big idea. It's a complicated idea. It's not an, uh, an idea that some of you may not have heard of it before or heard it discussed or, or um, had it only as kind of a wish in your heart that you didn't tell anyone about. Um, so I'm excited and looking forward to this discussion. Um, we're going to begin, as we usually do, um, by diving into some scripture. So I'm going to share my screen and we'll all look at um, our scripture for today, which is from 1 Timothy 2. Okay, so this is from 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings should be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, so let's start there. We've been at this now for a couple of weeks. What jumps out about this passage for you? What strikes you? And how does this passage bear on our continuing discussion of heaven, hell, and salvation? Well, verse three, this is good and it pleases God our savior 
and verse 4, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to know the truth. Yeah. That stands out for me. Sure. Everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and what makes that stand out? Flesh that out for us. Uh, everyone, as opposed to only chosen ones. Mm-hmm. Possibly. And, you know, it says that Jesus gave himself to redeem all mankind, or verse 6. Not some, but all, <laughs> A-L-L, all mankind. Sure. By, you know, that God wants everyone to be saved. Now, I don't know if it's just because of this you know, childish version. It's today's English version. I, I don't have my NIV with me. I left it at church. Oh, it's really but it, 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 it does say, though, he wants everyone to be saved by coming to the truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the Apostle Paul would say anything much different from that. Mm-hmm. But what about what we've now I've missed the first two sessions, but we also know that there are some that are in other scripture that says they're going to be punished. Yeah. Because of their evil deeds. So uh, it's a conflict there with me. Sure, sure. Uh, this is really good, right? So part of what we, part of what we see when we look at this scripture with the eyes that we've, with the eyes that we had last week, of course we had the same eyes last week. You know what I mean? When we look at this passage of the Bible and we have in mind the passage of the Bible we looked at last week, we see some tension, right? Um, especially when we look at this passage with. Um, the lenses of St. Augustine, our friend and teacher from last week, who talked to us about his very specific, particular view of grace. Um, so there's, I, I don't think we're wrong to see a, a tension within the scripture. Um, not at all. Yeah. So here's my last question. The last question. Um, so, well, first of all, let's just flesh this out a little bit. So what specifically is the contrast that we see between a passage like this and a passage like Matthew 25 that we looked at last week? Well, that's where I kind of get my, not everybody will be saved, that they'll be sorted out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Doris. It, it's, it's as simple as that, right? That like, this is a passage that very much emphasizes God's desire for everyone to be saved. And in Matthew 25, we seem to have a different picture. So um, let me go back. So does anyone remember, this is, this is a real reach. So if no one knows, it's okay. Does anyone remember how Augustine deals with this passage in the stuff from Augustine that, that I recommended? Um, so when he's laying out his own view of heaven and hell, which is of course quite different from the one we're going to talk about this week, he he tackles this passage. Does anyone remember or, or have just even an idea of what he does with it? You would have had to have both done the entire reading, which of course you didn't have to do since it's only recommended, and you would have had to have been paying attention. So if you didn't pick it up, that is quite acceptable. I'm not disappointed. I did, I did read it. Yeah. You did read it. <laughs> so, um, it's interesting, right? What he, um, 
So all Christians experience a conundrum, right? So on one hand, we find it in the scriptures right here in this passage, this assertion that God wants everyone to be saved. God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Presumably that means come to believe in Jesus Christ as their savior, come to know him as the way, the truth, and the life. God wants that. Does that happen for everyone in their lifetime? No, right? We all know people who, for whatever reason, um, certainly don't come to faith, don't come to knowledge of the truth during their journey in this world. And so there's a there is an unresolved question there, right? What do we do with this um, statement on one hand that says God wants everyone to be saved, on the other hand, the reality that many people don't seem to come to saving faith in Jesus during their lifetime. So if you look at how Augustine deals with this passage, he handles it in a very interesting way. So he says, and this is, this is the reading, in the reading for last week, he says, we must understand the scripture where it says, who desires everyone to be saved, our passage for today, as meaning that no person is saved unless God wills his salvation. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would say that. Not that there is no person whose salvation he does not will, but that no one is saved unless he wills it. So, he essentially puts a, um, he essentially reinterprets this passage away from the plain or the literal meaning of the passage to be slightly in line with his own train of thought. Now, in itself, that's not, uh, that's not a bad thing. I don't say that to throw him under the bus. All great Christian thinkers do this from time to time because they all have to deal with the whole Bible and the breadth of challenging passages, which often fit together harmoniously and sometimes stand in some tension with one another. So one of the things we'll see, right, is that there's biblical evidence to support Augustine's view, the sort of traditional view of hell, that some people are eternally damned, that they are never saved, And there is some biblical evidence to support um, the view we're going to look at tonight, the universalist point of view. Um, What Augustine does is he takes the passages like Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats, and he gives them priority. He kind of lets them go first in line. So they are the passages that then stand over and interpret passages like this one from 1 Timothy. Are you with me? Are you seeing what I'm seeing, what I'm saying? Right. So he, um, he knows the passage, he addresses it. He wants it to allow it, wants to allow it to speak, but he puts a gloss on it. Right. So that's Augustine's resolution. That's the resolution that will lead you to the view we talked about last week, the eternal conscious torment view. So Augustine basically says, God does not in fact want all people to be saved. And that's why some people aren't saved. Now, um, this week, when we talk about universalism, there's another resolution, right? 
So the, the problem is scripture tells us God wants everyone to be saved on one hand. On the other hand, not everyone comes to faith in Jesus during their lifetime. The, the universalist solution is, well, everyone comes to faith eventually, perhaps after they die. Right? So that's another way of um, resolving the tension, of solving the potential problem. Um, and we're going to talk more about one specific exponent of that point of view in a second. Um, I was really glad that Tony pointed out the use of the language of all in 1 Timothy 2.6. Um, that language is really interesting, right? So what I call universalism is the Christian belief that no one will be damned in the end, that in the end, everyone will be saved. So Universalism is different than being a Unitarian Universalist. Um, that's sort of a separate, separate religious thing, right? So Universalism is a specifically Christian belief, at least in the context in which I use it. Sometimes Universalism is called, uh, it's called by a Greek name, it's called apokatastasis. Um, why use a $5 English word when you could also use a $5 Greek word? Um, so <laughs> apokatastasis, which means restoration. Restoration. So often it is, is called apokatastasis pantom, right? Or restoration of all things, restoration of all. So... That word all is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 2.6. So um, it's the word that's used to describe, you know, God died for all to save all. Like it's a very important part. So if you want a tour of the universalist passages of Holy Scripture, one thing you can do is go to Bible Gateway and just do a New Testament search for the word all. <laughs> because you'll find a lot of times there are a lot of times where it doesn't relate to universalism, but when, especially when you get into Paul's letters and other parts of the new Testament, look for that word and you'll find um, the, the sort of universalist case um, laid out. Okay. What do you make of this idea? Give me sort of a preliminary shoot from the hip evaluation. And, um, are you positive on, on universalism, curious about it? Are you skeptical of it, not yet sold on it? Wh where do you come down at this point? Obviously, in an hour, you'll know a lot more than you know now, but I'm curious what your initial thought is. Well, it's much more comforting than eternal damnation. If <laughs> indeed, there's another chance. If you don't get it in this life, in the next life, it it not quite as scary, I guess. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the Augustinian idea is, is partly that like this life is so determinative for what happens to us in eternity. And um, the universalist position is more flexible, right? It says there, there sometimes in this life, we don't get it, but that God's grace and mercy doesn't run out for that reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, other responses? 
Well, that part where you mentioned God wants everyone to be yeah. saved, what it says in First Timothy. Yeah. Uh, his desire is for everyone, for all to be saved. But then, like when Doris mentioned, uh, like in, Ver- in Matthew 25, as you, as you did also, yeah. Then we see that part is like, well, God wants it, but not, not everyone will be because there will be two different groups. Right. And so I'm tying that together with Jeremiah 29, 13. That's what comes to my mind, huh. uh, where it says, and you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. Uh-huh. Now, possibly he, that was being said only to the Hebrew people at that time. I don't know to whomever Jeremiah was speaking. But could it be that he desires it, but the person needs to make an effort? It's not like yeah. chosen, a chosen group. The, there's a responsibility on the person also. Right. Yeah. Um, so this is from the person yeah that's a very good question so um we'll talk a little bit more about that next week so augustine's theology is a theology that places the maximum possible emphasis on divine grace divine initiative kind of on god doing all the work And it is very skeptical about the human ability to respond appropriately to God without God's help. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, we talked about the, the um, Pelagian heresy, right? So part of this comes from the controversy that Augustine was engaged in fighting to say, no, 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 you can't do it on your own. You must have grace to be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens, and Hunsinger talks in his article about how in the 19th and 20th centuries, there's a movement away from God sending people to hell towards people sending themselves to hell. <laughs> and that's, I, I call that the free will defense of hell, right? That some people in effect damn themselves um, because they will not accept or respond to God's love in Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunsinger is very down on it um, for reasons having to do with his being Presbyterian for standing in our reformed tradition. Um, but that's a, it is a very common question. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and there are many who would defend the idea of hell, especially in the modern period, who would say, well, Augustine is correct that hell is eternal, but he's incorrect in that, in that it's not ordained by God. Now, this is going to say in some of the readings, and I'm sure you'll get to this, it's, it, it, the theory, uh, is it origin? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you read some of that, it, it's not like it's exactly a free pass. It's <laughs> Yes, that's right. It's, uh, uh, it's not like... You know, just grace is bestowed on everybody, no matter what you did. So, yeah. So that, that's a great point, Betty. Yes, and we're gonna we're gonna talk more about that yeah. as well. Um, that's that's really important. So, you you read my mind. You could tell I wanted to transition to the next thing we're gonna talk about, and you provided the perfect transition for me. So 
here's what we're going to do. Um, what we're going to do now is I'm going to play you another song. So the first week of this class, I played you the song by the rock band U2, after whom uh, this, after which this course is named until the end of the world. That song is sort of a um, implicit I, uh, engagement with universalism. If you remember what that song's about, it's about, it's a ballad that's sung from Judas to Jesus that envisions a kind of final reconciliation between them. So I'm going to play you another song that has some of the same themes of this idea of universalism. And then I, I want us to reflect a little bit about it. So this is um, a song by a Canadian singer-songwriter. His name is um, Ron Sexsmith. But just listen to the words because it's an absolutely incredible, um, it, it is, he is not a Christian person as, as far as I know, but it's a really interesting engagement with the theme of our, our uh, discussion today. So just have a listen. everyone like a mother loves her son no strings at all unconditional never one to judge could never hold a grudge about what's been done God loves everyone There are no gates in heaven Everyone gets in Quill or stray Souls of every faith Hell is in our minds Hell is in this life But when it's done God takes everyone It's love is like a womb It's like the air from room to room It surrounds us all The living and the dead May we never lose the thread that bound us all The killer in his cell The atheist as well The pure of heart And the one at heart Are all worthy of its grace It's written in the face Of every God loves everyone And there's no need to be saved No need to feel afraid Cause when it's gone God takes everyone 
loves everyone. All right. So I think that's a very beautiful song. I'm curious to hear what you thought of it as a statement about our faith. Did you resonate with that song? Did you, did, were there parts of it where you said, wait, no, that's not right? What did, what, what did you think and feel? I mean, what would you say is the, is the, what's the main message of the song? I guess that there isn't really a hell that God loves everyone. And because I have some people in my life that I care about that are agnostic or maybe even atheist um, and not happy with the organized religion, I would, I would hope that might be true. (laughs) Yeah, that that doesn't bother me about atheists or just people questioning or don't have a commitment. But how about the 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 people the, the people the, the men like Hitler? That's what I, I mean. Saying. It's hard for me to when he he sings everyone. I love the song, but yeah. unfortunately, what comes to my mind first is the horrend- the, the horror of Hitler and sure. other you know other yeah. cracks like that. Uh, it's hard from, I wish I, you know, I just, I have trouble with that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The first week we were together, um, Kim and Tom talked about, you know, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin, right. And there, you know, human history is replete with examples of evil people and especially evil people who get into positions of power and do bad things. And, you know, what does the, is there room in the vantage point of a song like this to address something like that in a realistic way? It's a fair question. Other thoughts? Well, it sounds very inclusive, Uh even though as Lou said, you know, and you mentioned, you know, people in history, you know, and people nowadays, <laughs> some people can mention a few nowadays too, who do not live by do unto others as you would want others to do unto you and love your neighbor as yourself, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So what I think, uh, the reason um, I would go against it is that I think at the beginning, well, according to Genesis, at the beginning, it's like there was chaos but God put order into the universe. He, he created the universe and he put order there. So in God, God has a system in that orderly system. There is this message or this value system that we're mm-hmm. to live by, to love God right. and love others as ourselves. Right. And I want that to be included Mm-hmm. I want to, I like the idea of, inclu- you know, it's totally inclusive, but at the same time, there has to be that order and that value system, which I'm really glad that it is in the Bible, because that's a way of being kind to others and, and showing love, that he is a God of love, and he, because, and he wants us to love others and to show in our behavior and, and words that we love them. So that's where I see a clash between this. Oh, yes, all inclusiveness. It's wonderful. But at the same time, it it that it does not necessarily induce people to 
behave in a loving way. Right. Yeah, I, I think you've put your finger on something really important, Tony, right? That, you know, in a sense, taking a song like that, which is this beautiful, winsome thing that's only three minutes long um, and taking it apart in a class like this, obviously that's a little unfair. But I think, you know, what's not included in a song like that is a sense of right and wrong. This is how you live your life, right? Do unto your, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's how we human beings express love to one another. And it's also, we would think how God wants us to express our love for him, you know? Um, so yeah, there is something really important there. Where, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say that I, in my observation of life at this point, it seems as though there are consequences, not only after we die, but now uh, for what we do. And uh, certainly, I certainly believe that God loves everyone. That part of his song, I thoroughly yeah. agree with. But I don't necessarily think that the rest of the song where he's saying that, you know, we're all, it's all going to be hunky dory no matter what <laughs> is, uh, is valid. I don't think it's valid. Yeah. Uh, because it doesn't match up with what, uh, of what, I mean, why would God give us the 10 commandments if it, if anything goes? Sure. Hmm. So where's the, the, the real question is where's the cross in this song? Right. And and the answer is it's it's not here, and 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 that's you know no song can do everything, but I think from a from a Christian point of view, the challenge and it it comes up in conversations like this all the time is to do justice on one hand to the universal scope of God's love. Right, it is absolutely and completely true that God loves everyone. Right. And every time you meet a person, no matter who they are or how repugnant they may be, you have met someone that God loves. And that's totally true. And I think that, you know, insofar as this song makes that point, I think it's very important to listen to it and heed it. The problem is that as Christians, we also have to do justice to the depth of humanity's recalcitrant resistance to God's love. <laughs> right. And then of course it was, that was the resistance that put Jesus on the cross, right. Mm -hmm. Is that Jesus came around and said, all right, everybody be nice to each other. You should all get along. And we said, no, nuts to that. And you know, up he went. So the challenge for a universalist theology is to avoid becoming that sort of theology, right? So to av avoid becoming the point of view that says it's okay, it's all right, everything's fine, no big deal, right? Um, because that also does not do justice to what we find in scripture. Does that, does that make sense? Are y'all with me? Well, we have to respond to God, God's love. I think that's the part that is missing in, in the song. Sure. And it, yes, yes. We have a responsibility. We're to fear God. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and to, 
I think, to take into account the, the, the fact that we're all sinners, right? And, and to, to say, <laughs> you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Part of me wants to follow Jesus and be a good person, and part of me does not. <laughs> and I'm going to be at war, so to speak, with that resistant part of myself <laughs> until the day the Lord calls me home. And it's the same for everybody else. And how, right, that's that's that is how I would put it. But I I think we're talking about the same thing. Um, okay, so let me move us along to the next stage in um, our discussion. So I'm gonna what I'm gonna do now is introduce us to our interlocutor for today, who's a guy named Origin, and then lay out some elements of his point of view, and we'll have some discussion about it. Okay, so let's talk about origin of Alexandria. So this debate between universalists and um, the traditional view actually goes back millennia. Um, it's not a new debate. Um, so our two dialogue partners for the first two weeks have been Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the 300s and 400s, and this gentleman, origin of Alexandria, who was born around 185, and died in 254. So, um, I mean, it's, you know, these, these ideas are, are very old. <laughs> um, so, and he, he of course gets in kind of before Augustine promulgates the traditional view. So before the traditional view kind of becomes the settled opinion of the Western church, Origen is doing his thing. Um, Origen was a priest, a monk, and a scholar. And he is widely regarded as kind of the first systematic theologian or the first systematic thinker in the church. So he's, he's very important. If you read, you know, histories of the church, you'll definitely come across his name. As an example of his creativity and his academic rigor, he created, the, he created this thing that's called the hexaplot. It's a made up word. You see, it's got the word hex in it. It, it. it just means like thing with six columns, right? And it's basically a way of doing biblical exegesis on the Old Testament because one of the six columns is the Old Testament in the Hebrew. And then the next column is the, is the Old Testament translated from Hebrew into Greek, which was very popular. And then various other editions of the Old Testament. So this is a, the only sort of person that would create a book like this is someone who is totally and completely committed to studying the scriptures deeply as God's word and getting out of them all he could. So he would do things like go through and say, okay, wait, the Hebrew says this, but the Greek says this, right? So, okay, maybe it should say that, like he was a very deep and rigorous thinker, Today, when you take New Testament 101, you'll do something that's basically a very similar idea. You'll get these gospel parallels that have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all running next to each other in parallel. So he's really ahead of his time in many ways. Um, he's from Alexandria. Alexandria is a city in Egypt, right on the Mediterranean coast. So worth noting that both these distinguished thinkers in the life of the early church are from modern day North Africa. So they are not white Europeans. They're not 
pale and translucent in skin color like me, they, they look quite different. The early church is not a strictly European phenomenon. Um, if you go to Egypt with our mission trips here at the church, you'll have a chance to visit Alexandria. It's a beautiful city. There are still Christians worshiping there today, especially in the first several centuries of the church. It's a very important center for Christian faith and learning. So there are a lot of thinkers, especially in the ancient church, whose names are blank of Alexandria. <laughs> so Origen of Alexandria, Athanasius of Alexandria, Cyril of Alexandria, there's a bunch of of Alexandria's floating around out there and they're all important. Um, and if you visit Egypt today, you'll still find Coptic Christians who have been there for thousands of years. Um, that's a little about origin. So seven points that distinguish universalism. So again, following George Hunsinger's article, we're gonna trace these seven points that help, help us understand Origen's view. And we'll note the ways in which he diverges from Augustine, from the traditional view that we've we talked about last week. So the first two points, I, I've moved around the order that the points come in. So if you look carefully, you'll notice these are in a slightly different order. That's just for clarity. Um, the first two points are the ones that they agree on. So Origen and Augustine both agree, hell is actual, it's real, it's exi it exists. Number two, hell is just. They agree that, that hell is just, it's right, it's fair. Although as, as we'll see, this entails different things for both. These they agree on. Um, when you get to the third point, that's where the disagreements start. Hell is eternal or unending. So Origen just disagrees with Augustine on this point. And as a result, the remaining four points out of the seven all break down pretty differently. So for Origen, hell is indeed real. It is a bad place. No one wants to go there, but its duration is finite. No one stays there forever. So you may be there a day, you may be there a year, you may be there a century or two, maybe even longer, but no one stays there forever. It's not eternal, as Augustine suggests. You can see some quotations here. Um, there are a lot of quotations from his book on first principles, um, which is a very long discussion that covers a great many topics in Christian doctrine. He says, there is a resurrection of the dead and there is punishment, but not everlasting. For when the body is punished, the soul is gradually purified and so is restored to its ancient rank. So hell might be long, um, but it's not eternal. The third point. Fourth point, hell is severe. It is terrible. Uh, Augustine and Origen might agree on this point as well, but again, they mean different things. So remember for Augustine, one of the things that makes hell so terrible is that it, it's, it never ends and it's terribly bad. Um, for Origen, hell is not endlessly terrible. It is a purifying fire. It is a flaming sword that crushes, devours, and purifies our sin. And 
for origin, hell's severity varies from person to person in keeping with their sinfulness. So the person who is worse has a worse hell to go through before being restored. Number five, hell is penal. So this is probably the most important difference between Augustine and Origen. So you'll remember for last week, Augustine, for Augustine, hell is purely retributive. The aim of hell is to balance the scales of justice. So the, his point of view is we are all deeply in the wrong against God. We've all merited eternal punishment. The only thing that can balance the scales of justice when it comes to sinning against God is eternal punishment. Um, for Origen, he doesn't have that attitude. He thinks, although hell does consist of, quotes, torments, penalty, and torture for the soul, its purpose is ultimately restorative. And he says, these punishments are a form of very unpleasant and bitter medicine. I can't help but relate to that one as a parent. I'm constantly, I have three kids, I'm, they're constantly getting sick. I'm constantly trying to get them to take their medicine and they do not want to do. So I relate to that. And here are some quotations that I think are wonderful. Um, God, our physician, in his desire to wash away the ills of our souls, which they have brought on themselves through a variety of sins and crimes, makes us, makes use of penal remedies, even to the infliction of a punishment of fire on those who have, have lost their soul's health. And then this is from another writing of his, the, the Contra Celsus, where he says, God's wrath toward the sinner may have punitive elements, but quote, has a corrective pur purpose. God does not inflict punishment except as the means by which certain souls are purified by torment. <laughs> so one of the recommended readings was a little article from a Catholic journal called The Severity of Universal Salvation. And it's basically just, um, it's a Catholic thinker who is writing about origin and he says, look, people always say, oh, you're a universalist. That must mean you're a softy. That must mean you don't believe in punishment. And he's saying, well, I'm not entirely sure that's fair because look at how origin of Alexandria talks about what hell is. He doesn't think it lasts forever like Augustine. He also doesn't think it's fun to be there. <laughs> Right. It's it could and for many of us would be completely agonizing. Right. So it's that image of the purifying fire that is cleansing us is also burning away parts of us that we're probably pretty attached to. Ultimately, for origin, what God wants is not the eternal damnation of the sinner, but their restoration. Right. God. So apokatastasis, God wants restoration of everything. And what God wants, God gets, right? So Augustine, um, you know, basically just says, well, God wants everyone to be saved, but not everyone is saved, which means in the end, God does not actually want everyone to be saved. Origen flips that on his head and says, eventually everyone is saved. Everyone is restored. 
you can see these quotations here. God always wants to make good that which is wrong. And for the Almighty, nothing is impossible, nor is anything beyond the reach of cure by its maker. Um, of course, you know, nothing is impossible for God is written in our Bibles, every single one of us, but we're not accustomed to thinking of it in this context, right? Um, the idea that even souls who have departed and gone on are beyond, are not beyond the reach of God's mercy. And then we have our last two points. So number six, hell is ordained by God. So this was, this is the point that clarifies Augustine is not a free will defender of hell, right? Well, Augustine thinks not only is hell full of people and it's terrible, but God wants them to be there. Interestingly, Origen would say, oh yes, hell is real and it's full of people. They're just not going to be there forever. <laughs> so when Origen says, yes, hell is ordained by God, it has a quite different significance than it does for Augustine. So hell is ordained by God. And number seven, hell is inscrutable. Um, so for Augustine, ultimately, hell is mysterious. We can't um, fully know the meaning of it, why certain people are there, why anyone is there at all. Um, that's not for us to know. We have simply to yield to God and trust him. Hell for origin, because it is... Um, aimed at recuperating and restoring the sinner rather than simply punishing them is ultimately much less mysterious than it is for Augustine. Okay, so th those are our seven points. Let's pause and have some discussion now. You've heard a little bit more about this point of view. Does this make you like it more? Does it make you like it less? Um, and do you think his view is scriptural? Do you think his view is scriptural? Those are some questions I'd love to hear from you guys about. Where did Origen get his idea in scripture that hell is like a hospital? You don't like it while you're there, but it's going to get you better. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think he gets it from a couple places. So he gets it from he gets it from some of the all passages that we talked about, um, for instance, First Timothy two, but also from some of the all passages in Paul, for instance, First Corinthians fifteen, where he says, "As in Adam all died, so in Christ will all be made alive." Um, and I, I think he gets it from also from passages that might not initially that reflect on the character of God. So for instance, you know, think about the parable of the prodigal son, right? Where um, we see God's heart depicted as this heart overflowing with mercy and compassion. So I don't know if there's a particular passage of scripture where he says, Oh, here's where it says on page 79 that hell is like a hospital and you don't like it while you're there, but eventually you get better. Um, I think he is drawing on one convictions about the universal nature of Christ's saving work. And two reflections on the character of God. 
that uh-huh. God's not going to be happy as long as there's someone down in hell. And maybe he's wrong for promulgating that theory, but I think that's where he's getting. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Other thoughts and responses? Well, to me, Origen is using some you know, rational thought. It, it seems to me more rational to think that sure. we, by cleansing, we all have different levels of sinfulness. But by cl- cleansing at different levels, it right. brings us back to a uniform state. Sure. Now, that's this rational thought, but... <laughs> And make I think we're allowed to use you know use reason. <laughs> right. You, not, you, you know. have my blessing to, to use reason. Right. Yeah. Right. So another way of putting it, right, is that um Augustine, so like the first week, Deb Wolbach made this comment where she was like, I want to hear about how there are like different ranks of hell, right? Or different ranks of heaven. And maybe if you only send a little, you get a better one. And maybe if you send a lot, you get another one, right? And Origins theology, it seems to me, is sympathetic to that wish, whatever we might make of it, insofar as, right, the life you live has some impact on what your post-mortem existence will be like, right? right. And if that's if that's something that's important to you obviously that's really important i has he mentioned anywhere uh, i'm assuming that there are people who will not spend time in hell um whereas, whereas in my mind the, the catholic theology says everybody goes to purgatory and then eventually works their way into heaven yeah sure. um, is does he make any mention everywhere of the ones of you who are going straight to heaven are the ones of you who do blah 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 and then the rest of you are going to go to hell and god will burnish you and and cleanse you from all iniquities and move you into heaven is is there a is is, is there a statement of faith is there an acceptance of grace is there uh something there that says okay i don't have to do the hell part i can just go right to heaven sure yes that's a good question too. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the answer of that off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure that for him, um, be living your life in a state of accepting God's grace and, um, depending upon it has a dramatic effect on what happens to you after you die. Right. So either you go straight to heaven with, you know, sort of on the express train or you spend a minimal time in purgatory that is quite different from what people in hell might experience. Yeah, that's that's important to bring up. Thank you. That one story and the one reading about a woman who lived a terrible life. Yeah. I can't remember what the reading was and she goes down into hell and, and her guardian, her angel, yeah. goes up and says, isn't there some way we can redeem this woman and... and uh, I, I guess whoever says, I don't know if it's God says, well, if she did one thing in her life, well, one time she gave an apple to a beggar. So he said, well, take the apple down and see if you did anybody read that and you take it down and she holds on to the apple and he's trying to pull her out of hell. And then 
there are people hanging on to her because they see she's coming up. She starts kicking them off. So then the apple breaks and she falls right. back down. So, right. So I just so, found that interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up. We're going to, we're going to talk about that um, in, the, okay. in the, in the concluding section. Like, so the, it's, okay. um, it's, it's from uh, the Russian writer Dostoevsky. Um, it's, so it's actually from his book, The Brothers Karamazov, um, mm. which I encourage you to read uh, if you haven't already. It's amazing. Um, and yeah, it's, so you summarized it very well. So part of what it asks, right, is what does it mean to be in heaven if you know that there are people who might be in hell? <laughs> Mm. And can we mm -hmm. so neatly separate out the one from the other, right? That's part of what he's getting at. Ro. Do you ever hear the other story? Um, so they, were in, they went to hell and there was this wonderful porridge and it was cooking and it smelled delicious and everyone was hungry, but they had these spoons and they were so long that they couldn't get the food in their mouth. And then they went up to heaven and it was the same delicious smelling stew with the same spoons, but they were feeding each other. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like that image. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah sure. That, that is a beautiful image. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, tell me more about what you make of the idea of universalism. Well, I, th I mean, I think it's, it's still a concept of hell that, um, but I think it's a little more hopeful mm -hmm. um, to me that um, God still wants to save us and save, you know, and give us an opportunity to be redeemed. So, I, I mean, I think that's um, hopeful. So I, I see the hopefulness in this scenario that there is hope for everyone. So Sure, sure. So the one common knock on universalist interpretations of Christianity is that they kind of do away with any motivation to be good during this lifetime. So some of you may remember the first week, um, I think it was, I think it was Tom said something like, you know, if, I, if I'm going to go to the same place as Vladimir Putin when I die, um, you know, what's, what's the point? <laughs> um, so what do you make of that objection? I don't think that was me for whatever. No, it, uh, <laughs> it was the other Tom, Tom Beggs. Oh, okay. Yes. I find you, I, I absolve you of making that statement. <laughs> for me, it doesn't, it's not so much that as it, takes the worry off of me as of the people Roe talked about, friends of mine who are not believers, who are not, who may be agnostic or atheist or whatever, yeah. who are non-Christian, I feel less pressured to try to, I'm not, yeah. I don't know, I, I just, I feel like, okay, well, I would share the gospel with them, but if they don't take it, they've got another chance without yeah. me yeah. so that kind of takes that pressure off um i hadn't thought about it personally it's too hard to be 
completely evil and nasty. I'm too lazy to be completely evil and nasty, a la Vladimir Putin. I'm not going to, you know, uh, it's easier for me to try to be nice than it is to be nasty. So that doesn't uh, change that part of me, but it does change the the urgency I feel for people that I love and care about that I don't believe know the Lord as Savior. Yes. So, yes. No. I got a question for you, Dave. Yeah. Where does the idea come that when Jesus comes again, there will be a second chance? Well, isn't, isn't there something out there that says that? Um, I have heard that idea before. I am not sure where that idea comes from. I know that uh, it, with, in reference to the Jews, uh, Martin Buber, uh, the, the Jewish scholar, said that uh, when, uh, when Messiah comes, his point of view, uh, Jews will recognize their long-awaited uh, Messiah, and Christians will recognize their risen Lord, and mm -hmm. that is a kind of unification for Christians and Jews. I don't know how that would apply to other people, but I, I, I don't know. I just throw that out there for what it's worth. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. I got I to marinate on that one for a while, but thank you. It's beautiful. Hi there, Dave. Yeah. Um, the universalism, the one, something that comes to mind for me is that it seems to contradict the idea of, of the gate being narrow. Good. Yeah. Um, so say a little more about that. I think I'm picking up what you're putting down, but flesh that out for us. Well, just, um, that, when that time comes for us, um, our ultimate destination, you know, in, in scripture itself, I, I, I know I've read that, that the gate, the narrow gate, yep. and that, that seems to indicate or imply that relatively few will go through that gate mm -hmm. compared to the, the total population of, of this world. Sure, sure. So yeah, that is a really important passage to bring into this conversation. So I'm, I'm grateful that you, you brought it in. I think, I forget what gospel that's in. It may be in all three synoptic gospels, the saying about, um, you know, strive to enter by, strive to enter by the narrow way, right? The, the road that leads to destruction, destruction is very broad and wide. Lots of people on that road that, you know, I'm, a, I'm the narrow way. Stick to the narrow way. So there are a couple things to say about that, and I'll try and address that as best I can. I actually, one of the things I appreciate about that passage is that it's actually kind of a, if you, I believe if you look at the context, it precedes or it comes after a discussion about whether or not many will be saved. And <laughs> Jesus kind of redirects that question a little bit by saying, essentially his answer to the question is not to say a ton of people are going to be saved. So don't worry about it. Or no one is going, very few are going to be saved. So you better freak out. 
Instead, he says, strive to enter by the door, <laughs> and the door is hard to get into. So I've always interpreted that passage, that passage as, a, as a warning or a, a take care without necessarily reading into it a prediction about how many people are going to be in heaven or hell. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Augustine would probably agree with you in, in the way that sounds like you've always read that passage. So Augustine just thinks most people are going to go to hell, <laughs> right? He's very skeptical and pessimistic, right? He's the kind of, you know, rock bottom estimate of all humanity. So maybe, maybe that's a correct interpretation. I'm inclined to see it differently. Some people are also, some discussions about universalism also um, worry that if everyone goes to heaven eventually, there's no reason to hold on to the uniqueness of the name of Jesus. Mm. That it just becomes, you know, you're a Jew, you're a Muslim, you're a Buddhist, I'm a Christian, I say potato, you say potato. Mm. Um, and there are certainly versions of Christian universalism that, that get, a, get much too close to that point of view for, for my comfort. Um, I don't think origin is in that boat, but I'm, I'm um, appreciative of that concern. So I Googled some things and this came up. I don't have my Bible with me, but um, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And that always brings up, you know, these people who keep saying they're so faithful and, and, um, they feel that because they believe that they're saved and it, and it, they don't necessarily live their life like Christians. Yeah. yeah. Um, that always interests me. Like I'm, I'm always wonder how that will play out. Sure. Yeah. There, there's going to be a lot of surprise in the kingdom of God there and, and a lot of chagrin, I think for some people, certainly. All right, so, so has Origin won anyone over? Is anyone coming out of our conversation tonight saying, okay, I am ride or die for universalism. Sign me up. I want to join the Universalist Society. Nope. I'm not seeing a lot of hands going up. Looks like we're more thoughtful. Maybe, maybe Betty? No, it just gives you something else to think about because I think in reading all of this, and I'm sure when I get to the end of it, I'm going to be just as confused as I was when I came in, but, but hopefully not. It, but it will give me more, it gives you something more to think about it because I, none of us will know or can know until we know. So, um, you know, yeah. So, so, but it gives you something more to think about. Yeah. Um, the, the, the most attractive options for you guys will probably be the next two weeks. Hmm. the the sort of uh, the week so next week is annihilationism and we'll talk also talk more about free will defenses which is where a lot of you have been gravitating already and then the following week is agnosticism which is which is basically saying i really hope that everyone is saved i don't know it for a certainty um so there are in other words we start you know this is augustine this is origin. And then the next two weeks are kind of filling in some of the gaps in between. 
So we have kind of ping-ponged back and forth between the two, um, two options that are pretty radically opposed. Um, so it's certainly there's going to be more time to think about it and discuss it. There's been a lot covered this evening. And in listening, do I entertain or consider how about how much can I get away with and still be pleasing to God? Sure. The question of one of the so the the question I heard you asking was okay you know it does universalism do away with some motivation to be good so I think one question we have to ask ourselves and this is really important you know why why do we believe in Jesus why do we um, why do we have faith in him right does it have does it is the is it more positive stuff. Or is it negative stuff, right? And I think they both play a role in some way, right? Um, the positive stuff being love for Jesus, love for other people, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of God's love being with us always. The negative stuff being, hey, sin has consequences and I don't feel good when there's brokenness in my life. And then ultimately right? The, the fear of hell. And if you read the Christian, if you look at the Christian tradition over the last 2000 years, there are a lot of people for whom the negative is very powerful and influential in their life of faith for good or for bad. Um, I have always found the positive to be way more motivating than the negative. But it's an interesting question, right? So like if you read the, if you read the Puritans, right? Are these, you know, these founding fathers up in New England in the 16 and 1700s, they were really concerned about going to hell. And they spent a lot of time worrying about it and praying about it and thinking about it. And, and it, it shaped their life and it, they produced many amazing spiritual figures. They also spent a lot of time worrying about going to hell when they probably didn't have to. <laughs> um, it's a complicated issue is, is what I'm trying to say. I'm, I firmly believe that ultimately the positive forces of love for God and faith <clears throat> in and in God's goodness should motivate us more um, than the negative. But that's not everyone's opinion in the Christian tradition. Well, when you think of God as love, there's a lot more to that point of view than uh, than thinking negatively, for sure. Yeah. Let me, um, we got about 10 minutes left. Let me share some final thoughts, just as a way of trying to tie this together. And then we can have some further discussion. So as I've said before, you know, I'm, I'm interested in helping you to think well and faithfully about these issues. I have no vested interest in telling you what to think. So I'm going to give you my opinions. Um, you know, that and $5 will buy you a latte. Um, okay, some closing thoughts. One, this is all about biblical interpretation. So notice how the, the, the debate, if you want to call it that, where these different opinions turn on different interpretations of scripture. I don't, so Augustine and Origen interpret scripture differently and they prioritize different parts of the scriptural witness. 
neither of them is so shallow as to say, I like this part of the Bible, but I don't like that part of the Bible. They don't do that. What they do is say, I think this is the center of the Bible, and I'm going to interpret everything else in light of this part, which is kind of what everyone does in some way, shape, or form. But the question is, how adequate is their interpretation to the whole Bible? What that means, I think, is that we cannot simply settle this debate or settle these differences just by quoting scripture or just by proof texting, right? There's not one passage, I think, that's like a knockdown um, solution or argument ender to this. Of course, we don't, we don't want to be totally untethered from the Bible either. So um, there's a very deep issue here of how we approach the Bible, how we interpret the Bible, how we will be guided. Um, if you read Hunsinger at the end of the section on origin, he has this wonderful little analogy where he says, look, you know, Augustine was, um, Augustine was like a sailor who went out on his little boat and he always stayed close to the shore, right? And the, you know, the, in this metaphor, the sailor is the interpreter and the shore is the Bible, right? And Augustine sticks really close to the shore and he sticks with the literal sense of the scripture. And so he, he has no problem with passages like Matthew 25, where it says, okay, there's two people, they go, this one goes away to eternal paradise and these ones go away to eternal fire. That's it, right? And he can just say, yep, that's what the Bible says, the end. Origin, on the other hand, he says, Origin sails out into the depths, right? And gets a little bit further away from the shoreline. And he says, well, Origin would say, look, look at this magnificent scenery, right? When you get further away, you really see what matters. And of course, to Origin, what matters is God's love, right? That's the overwhelming priority for him. So there are different styles of biblical interpretation that produce different results. And I think this is an encouragement to us to see, keep reading and rereading the Bible, keep studying it, seeking to put its message into practice, um, and we will be led into the truth. Even as we recognize, yeah, there are these big issues that even really smart people disagree on. Okay, that's the first point. Second point, the strength of originism, I think, is the way it jives with our most important instincts about the character of God. You know, we saw last week, right, that for Augustine, I, I think this is a fair statement, you know, the range of God's mercy is extended only to a few, right? That, that God decides to have mercy on a small group of people and lets the other ones go to hell because, and he's not wrong to do that. People do say, okay, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound very kind. And originism has this different attitude, right? That um, the God of the prodigal son, the God of the, the woman sweeping her house, looking for the lost coin, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 behind and goes out to find the one lost sheep. Um, 
Origen does a very good job of upholding that image of God. You can see it here. Hunsinger has this wonderful line where he says, Origen grants unqualified primacy to the mercy and benevolence of God. He grants unqualified primacy to the mercy and benevolence of God. And that's why in the end, that's one of the reasons in the end, he's a universalist. So this brings us back to the story that, that Betty reminded us about. Um, so Betty did a really good job of recapping it. I'm going to recap her recap so that we can all be on the same page. Because um, I'm assuming many of you weren't able to, to look at it, right? So it's a story of a, a mean old woman who dies and finds herself in hell. And there is an angel watching her in heaven who says, oh gosh, I can't watch her in hell. This is terrible. And he turns to, to God and says, isn't there anything I can do? And God says, you know, while she was on earth, she did one good thing. She gave a poor person an onion. She gave one poor person one onion. So take that onion and go down and, you know, see if you can help her in some way. And the angel goes down to hell and he gives her the onion and he says, hold on to this onion. And he begins to lift her up out of hell towards heaven. And the woman says, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I'm going to get out of here. This is terrific. And then what happens? Everyone else in hell starts hanging on to this woman's legs. And the story ends when she says, no, 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 no. This is my onion. It belongs to me. It's not your onion. And she kicks at the people who are holding on to her, trying to knock them off her back down into hell. And the onion breaks in two and she falls back. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is you can't be saved alone. And the idea of eternity being divided into two camps where one is this realm of eternal blessedness forever and ever, where everyone's as happy as they could possibly be. And the other is this other realm of absolute misery and terror. The question origin might raise is, you know, can the blessed be happy in that situation? Can Jesus be happy in that situation? Origen says, my savior cannot rejoice while I remain in iniquity, right? Jesus can't be happy if I am in hell. <laughs> so I think the origin story, if we can put it that way, right? The, the origin story about universalism also does justice to these sorts of questions, right? That if it's, you can't get out of hell without taking some other people with you, Maybe this story origin tells us where everyone is saved in the end actually makes more sense. So I often find that at this point in the journey, people just want me to tell them the right answer. So I'll put some of my cards on the table here. Um, I think origin is an extremely illuminating figure and has a lot to teach us. I come down somewhere between origin and Augustine. So I'm not a diehard member of each of those camps. And I suspect that's where many of you will come down as well. Um, so I'm an agnostic and not a universalist. So I think we can 
pray and hope that all will be saved and put our trust in God without believing in that as a definite certainty. That's where I come down, right? So as I've said before, you know, of all the theologians in this course, my heart probably belongs the most to Karl Barth. Um, we'll get him in the fourth week. So Augustine would say, Dave, you have a tender heart. You're a good person. You are way, way, way underestimating the over underestimating the sin of human beings, right? P.T. Barnum, he said, no one ever went broke uh, underestimating or overestimating the stupidity of the American population, right? Um, Augustine is kind of like that. Um, Origen would say, Dave, you're on the right track, but you've lost your nerve, <laughs> right? You got to keep going all the way to the end. So I'm going to give both of our, those thinkers the last word on that. Um, we got a few, few more minutes before we have to go. Um, I want to hear any other thoughts or opinions or comments that are rattling around in your head. Hey, everybody. Um, so I'm trying my best to piece this together. Some of it feels really simple, and then other times it feels like it's super complex, and then your inner dialogue becomes your outer dialogue. And ugh. <laughs> But right. I think I fall right now. This is always kind of a journey for me each time I, I kind of think through this stuff. But I tend to look at the universalism approach from a lens that says, and this is what's helped me to look through a universal lens when I have that conversation about universalism versus agnosticism or, you know, the extreme other ends of it. Um, I often wonder if that, if everyone were to be able to go to heaven mm -hmm. in that worldview and all are safe, no matter what, right. Do we have different appreciations of eternity in an opposite worldview of what Dante would have said or something, not, not in anguish, but just simply, I accepted Christ on my deathbed. Therefore, uh -huh. I don't really know him, sure. but I'm thankful for him yeah. versus I spent my life dedicated to trying to strive after holiness, right? And right. so I'm sitting next to Moses and I'm sharing right. clinking drinks with Jesus or whatever's in your mind, right? right? Right. And then there's the other side of it, which is everything's covered by the blood. So those guys didn't really try. So they're just kind of there. They're like, he put right. and prepared a place for us. It's completely empty. Right. There's nothing in here. There's no treasure stored up. I didn't right. do anything good. I gave right. poor people an onion. <laughs> right. And nobody wants an onion. Um, <laughs> but I got to come. You know, and and so I just wonder if there may be through that universalism lens, like yeah, if everybody gets to go and you have to live in a worldview that says there can't in heaven, there's no crying or no tears. Are there just different variations of appreciation there when you get to, to sure. go? Sure. Sure. That's, that's my thought. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. So one of the, an, another version of this, right. And you, you hear about this in Eastern Orthodox thought, right. Um, this is in the David Bentley Hart book that I recommended it's a whole book. I didn't expect anyone to read it, but it's worth checking out. Like in some Eastern Orthodox theology, they hold that heaven and hell are actually the same place. They heaven and hell are both the presence of God in all of his glory, but the saved and the damned have dramatically different reactions to it. 
So this is, this is just what Ling was talking to me about before we started the recording, right? Um, so if you've been a saint all your life, you get to heaven and you think, oh, this is fantastic. Hello, Jesus. It's so wonderful to see you, right? Oh, and look, it's my best friend. Whereas if you've been a, a, a terrible sinner all your life, you don't want to be in heaven. Mm-hmm. And it's a repulsive place. And you think, oh, where are all the cool people, right? <laughs> so there are, there are various, like, part of what I hear you asking, Nate, is like, how do we what significance does our actual lived existence have for the afterlife, right? And Origen's idea of sort of a penitential or a purifying hell is one way of doing justice to that. This other idea of heaven and hell are the same place and what you did in life kind of affects how you experience it is another one. Okay, we're gonna call it a night right there. Okay, Thank you all. So next week, we're gonna take a look at annihilationism so the idea that there is a hell but if you go there you just you pop out of existence and you don't suffer eternally we're also going to take a look at some free will defenses of hell um so i'd invite you to come back next week um thank you all so much for coming and participating i look forward to seeing you all then thank you dave thank you thank you thank you